to season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new season of our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In this our third season, we turn to the world of politics. As always, we'll be looking through a nonpartisan lens as we examine this critical question. What should be the role of the U.S. government in healthcare? We invite you, the listeners, to share your thoughts on this topic. Please take the new Fixing Healthcare survey available on my website, robertpearlmd.com. We'll be reading and discussing the best listener suggestions throughout season three. Our guest today is Dr. David Blumenthal. David is a healthcare policy expert and president of the Commonwealth Fund, a national philanthropy engaged in independent research on health and social policy issues. His career spans medicine, politics, and academia. He is a former primary care physician, director of the Institute for Health Policy, and professor of medicine and health policy at Harvard Medical School. Under the Obama administration, David served as the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, in charge of building a nationwide health information system and supporting the meaningful use of health IT. Welcome, David. We're thrilled to have you on the show. Good morning. This is the first episode in our third season of Fixing Healthcare. In the first season, we invited experts from within the current healthcare system and asked them to offer their views on how we could improve quality and access by 20%, lower costs by 20%, and increase satisfaction both for physicians and patients by 20% over the next few years. Their ideas were powerful and inspiring, but as you know, strategy without implementation is powerless. So in season two, we looked at approaches from outside the healthcare mainstream. We interviewed experts in system redesign, implementation, and disruptive change. In the current season three, we're focused on the role that government can play, and I can't think of anyone better able to offer insights based on broad personal experience than you. So let me begin with an overarching question. What do you believe the role of government should be? relative to the health and health care of the American people. Well, it's, it's great to be joining you, Robbie. Um, you've asked a very fundamental question. My views are that uh, government has the ultimate responsibility for assuring that all Americans, in fact, all citizens and residents of every polity, have access to affordable health care and high-quality health care. I also think government is uniquely suited to do research and development and to lead the implementation of innovative ways of improving the delivery of healthcare services. And in doing so, to find ways to stimulate and promote innovation in the private sector while also providing leadership. Can you be more specific as to 
how you see government getting involved in the provision of healthcare coverage? Well, I am uh, agnostic as to the precise mechanism. Uh, I think that in this country, the likely path we will take is to have guaranteed private insurance, high quality private insurance, accessible and easy to use private insurance for all Americans. I say that not because I think private insurance is preferred to public, but just because I think that is the the momentum in our healthcare system uh, and the way in which Americans think about, about uh, the provision of healthcare. Uh, in other countries, uh, the public provides coverage directly in some other countries, not in all, but in some. But there are many models uh, in Europe and elsewhere in which the government regulates private carriers and they sell insurance uh, in a competitive insurance market, but do so within the boundaries of a regulated market uh, to assure that there is coverage of pre-existing conditions, that there is uh, adequate coverage, that the uh, cost sharing is affordable, uh, and that uh, the full range of necessary benefits are covered. How about in the arena of drug development and pricing? We have a system in the United States which right now is tipped toward what the pharmaceutical industry likes to call innovation, uh, what others might call protection of intellectual property and exclusive rights to uh, new uh, findings, new intellectual findings. That balance is not stable at the current time. We are producing very, very important new chemical agents and new approaches to curing illness, which are devoutly to be appreciated. But we're doing so right now at a price that is making these findings inaccessible to large numbers of Americans and which are going to be unaffordable for the society as a whole. So we need to find ways to make them affordable. Um, and I think that means moving away from some outdated protections of intellectual property, uh, some, for example, associated with the Orphan Drug Act, and also some of the um, abuses of patent law that have arisen as pharmaceutical companies try to protect their intellectual property. The Commonwealth Fund has done an amazing job of highlighting both the high cost of American health care and the low quality compared to the other industrialized nations of the globe. Where do you see the government directly intervening in the care delivery system itself? The government is a source of enormous innovation, underappreciated in the payment of for healthcare services. I think they have been leading and will continue to lead in the creation of uh, effective methods for holding a providers accountable for cost and quality, something that goes by the euphemism of value-based payment. But I see the government leading us in this country toward more and more risk-sharing with providers in ways that the private sector seems either reluctant to do or incapable of doing. And so I think that uh, as DRGs, for example, in which hospitals hold some risk for the cost of hospitalizations, 
MACRA, the recent changes in how physicians are paid under Medicare, which allows physicians to adopt alternative payment methods that involve risk sharing, more aggressive downside risk in accountable care organizations. These are all positive developments that are leading toward risk sharing in a way that will, I think, moderate the tendency of providers to do uh, more than is absolutely necessary for uh, the care of patients. And will also change the dynamic around pricing so that increasing prices is not as easy and profitable for providers as it has been in the past. How about in the area of uh, regulating, limiting uh, prices in hospitals, doctors, and ancillary services like laboratory and radiology? Right now, we have two systems for setting prices in the United States. One is the private sector in which insurance companies negotiate with independent private providers. And the other is the public sector, notably Medicare and Medicaid, in which either state or federal governments administer prices, set them in some kind of negotiated process or more direct administrative process with the private sector. So if the private sector is going to continue to have the freedom to negotiate prices, they're going to have to find ways to make that negotiation fairer and more predictable. Uh, and that means making the prices transparent, that is making them public, and presenting them to the public in a way that is understandable and helpful for decision-making by purchasers, whether they're consumers or employers. Right now, we don't have that system. So unless the private sector finds a way to accomplish that, we will feel increasing pressure to have the public sector intervene to set prices. I don't think we will accept that politically until we have gone a long way down the line of making prices more apparent and transparent and presenting them in a way that's understandable and actionable. Uh, and I think that's the next agenda. Uh, and uh, I expect to see more and more of that over the, the next uh, three to five years. Is there an approach that you'd recommend that we take as a country? If we wanted to control costs, the most effective way and, and certain way of doing it would be to set prices the way every other country in the world does in negotiation with providers. I don't think we will do that. So I, what I prefer is that we get on as fast as possible and as assertively as possible with price transparency and with the presentation of prices in ways that are, as I said, understandable and actionable. That does not mean unrestricted, unregulated, spontaneous price transparency. It means price transparency probably in the nature of episodes of payment in local markets, episodes of care, of the type that makes sense to people and makes sense to the people who buy insurance, who are lay people, who are in, uh, work for employers, so that insurance companies and providers can be held accountable. I've taken the position in some of my Forbes articles that there's a cost shifting going on with Medicare 
having the ability to arbitrarily set prices and setting them below at least the current cost of the providing the care and that the commercial segment is bearing the brunt. Others have said that they disagree. Uh, do you have a point of view about the relative balance of the federal payments against the commercial ones? My economist colleagues do not believe that there is such a thing as cost shifting. And I think the rationale for that is that uh, as long as providers can raise prices to private payers, they will do so. Uh, and their ability to do so has nothing to do with their costs. It has everything to do with their uh, revenue aspirations. Uh, and that they could easily live within what Medicare pays, and indeed some do. So I do think, you know, having spent a good deal of my life working in healthcare systems, I do think that there is a tendency to spend up to what you can collect. That is that organizations, if they can make more money, will find ways to spend it. That's not necessarily to say that it's wasted or that it's not socially useful, but it, it doesn't necessarily reflect their cost of doing business. It reflects their aspirations for improvement. I think that that is not, in my, in my view, totally cost-shifting. It is a, a symptom of a non-competitive market on the private sector side. I like that explanation, David. Thank you. How about the role of government when it comes to privacy and security of patient data? Government, is the, uh, government needs to assure it, privacy and security. I think the private sector needs to implement the assurances. There need to be clear penalties for failure to protect patient data. I don't think that HIPAA is the right framework. It does govern the behavior of organizations, but it doesn't govern the use of information per se. That is, if you're not a covered entity, you have no requirements to protect private and to, to keep uh, patient data or patient information private and secure. That is a huge problem in the internet age and in the social media age. Uh, lots of organizations that will s soon be managing uh, intimate patient data are not necessarily covered entities and not, uh, not regulated under HIPAA. It is a daunting prospect for the government to wander into that field, but it is going to have to. We will watch and wait for a series of scandals to erupt that will create public pressure, political pressure, on Congress and state legislators to, uh, to act in this domain. The way this usually happens is that states start. They start regulating unregulated entities within their boundaries. I would expect large pro-government states like California, New York, Massachusetts, Michigan, uh, maybe Colorado, to begin this process. And at some point, the companies that are regulated are going to throw up their arms, throw up their hands, and say, ask the federal government to step in and create consistency across states. That's what usually happens with this kind of, um, this kind of phenomenon. How about when it comes to conflicts of interest, either by physicians or by researchers? Obviously, the Sunshine Act 
shown some light on that? Do you see a greater role that government should take in these areas? I think right now the use of transparency needs to be uh, needs to be allowed to unfold. The NIH, I suppose, is uh, perhaps the most benign pro-researcher side of the government, and I think that having the NIH set some boundaries around what's acceptable in conflict of interest is probably as effective as anything else in terms of uh, what kinds of uh, conflicts are not acceptable in getting research funding. We've been down this route now for 20, 25 years. Um, in the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of universities created conflict of interest policies that were quite uh, sufficient. Uh, many of them still have them. Uh, so I think that what's, what we're seeing now is in a, in a couple of very dramatic cases like Memorial Sloan Kettering is laggard institutions that never got around to adopting those policies or that have stopped enforcing them. Uh, so I think NIH needs to just remind organizations of what uh, their responsibilities are and make sure they have them. I think the AAMC also has a responsibility to uh, bring its members back into uh, compliance with rules that they had encouraged them to adopt 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I had a chance to watch your PBS interview, I think from 2002, about this issue, and uh, your insights then were quite prescient and uh, worth watching for anyone who's interested in this particular part of the healthcare delivery system. How about the out-of-pocket maximum cost? We know that today half of people can't afford to pay their full out-of-pocket cost were they to incur a serious illness. Does the government have a, rule, a role in protecting Americans from unaffordable out-of-pocket expense? Yes, it does. The private market will not do that. The most Western countries have a maximum out-of-pocket cost on an annual basis that and protect their citizens from uh, costs in excess of that. I think it would be helpful if the federal government did that. It's, it actually did that under the Affordable Care Act for in the individual market. If we had a universal private sector regulated uh, universal health care system, um, I would expect it would include an out-of-pocket spending maximum. Medicare for all is something that a lot of people are talking about as a way to help fix American health care. Do you think a move towards Medicare for all is realistic? If so, how long would it take and what would the roadblocks be? I don't think it's politically realistic. And I say that having been involved in multiple efforts over my career to enact uh, comprehensive national health insurance. Uh, I don't think that the American Congress is in the business of putting industries out of business. Uh, I don't think that they're going to force the insurance industries to, to close shop. And I think that the prospect of taking, ripping insurance away from 160, 180 million Americans is a insuperable political obstacle to um, Medicare for all. That says nothing about the 
merits of the of the idea. It's simply a political judgment. I think there's zero chance that it will be enacted in my lifetime. By the way, the one exception to that might be if we had a Great Depression or a Third World War. That is a catastrophe so unimaginable that it totally changed political calculations. You've done a great job, David, of outlining what you see to be the role of government. The listeners to the show, quite a number of them are healthcare professionals, quite a number of others are business experts. Very few of them have the breadth of experience that you do. So I'd like to shift now from the role that you see government to play for your, trying to, for your ability to help us understand actually how does the government work. And so let me start by saying that early in your career, you served as a staff member to one of the Senate's subcommittee, if I remember right. What did you learn about the legislative process at that time, and how can it be applied today? Well, I worked for Senator Edward Kennedy. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts. At least I've lived in Massachusetts most of my adult life, and I had the chance to work for him. Uh, he's now, of course, deceased, but at that time he was a fairly young man. Didn't seem young at the time, but I was much younger still. And uh, working in the Senate was a really extraordinary experience, especially working for Ted Kennedy. Um, he was a, a man of, he was a complex person, a complex individual. He, especially earlier in his life, he had uh, a number of personal faults that he later managed much better. But one thing he always was, was restless intellectually and, uh, and profoundly committed to improving healthcare uh, unique uh, in the Senate, unique in the Congress, uh, was truly a, a thought leader in the Congress on health care. So it was a great privilege to work for him. Um, I learned a couple of things. One thing I learned is that the congressional process is remarkably porous. Uh, it is designed to make it possible for citizens to approach the process. Uh, the doors are always open, especially to constituents of senators and congressmen. Uh, and uh, so it is, despite the appearance that it is dominated by private stakeholders of power, there is a great deal of opportunity for people to participate. So I guess that was one thing I learned. Um, another thing I learned is that senators and congressmen are pretty representative of the people that elected them. Uh, they're lay people. They are not sophisticated in their understanding of technical issues, whether it's transportation or energy um, or health. And that to convince them of a policy, you have to reduce it to understandable lay terms, which provides a kind of check on the power of professions. Uh, professions may not like that, but it it is the essence of democracy to require that the public understand what its representatives are being asked to do. And one way to make sure the public can understand it is for them to elect people who have the same level of comprehension and, a, and same perspective that they do. So I learned that the congressional process is porous. I learned that it is populated by people who are not always expert on the matters before them. That means that they are, they can be carried away by 
powerful stories that are not representative of the facts. Um, and it puts a huge burden on professionals to be understandable and to express themselves in ways that they're, uh, in fact, their patients, if they're health professionals, could understand. Uh, and that is an enduring challenge given the complexity of healthcare issues. And one of the frustrations for experts and for professionals is and always will be that the policies that come out of government often seem simplistic, but that is in part because the understanding of the issues is necessarily uh, falls short of the complexity of the issues. It's just very hard to get across to lay people uh, the complexity of the issues that, that have to be dealt with. Both in the presidential campaigns of 1988 and 2008, you served as chief health advisor to a candidate. What can you tell us about the process of becoming the chief executive for the nation and the role the president should play once elected in advancing the health of the country? Well, uh, for most of my career, uh, health was a, a, a relatively low priority issue for Americans and for candidates. So I learned in 1988 and in several subsequent campaigns that I participated in before President Obama's campaign, I learned to be humble about healthcare. I learned that those of us who spend our lives in it vastly overestimate how important it is to the American public and to the electorate. And, because, and if it's not important to the public and the electorate, it does not assume the same level of importance that we might like it to have with people running for office. So humility is one thing I learned. Another thing I learned is that, uh, consistent with what I was saying earlier about public understanding, when you are trying to convince people that you are the candidate they should vote for, you have to convey your ideas and your thoughts in ways they can understand and that respond to their concerns. And that is a big challenge for advisors in every area, whether it's trade or, or banking or uh, taxation or whatever. And it's a, it is a challenge in healthcare. So I learned how important it is, as I suggested earlier, to find ways to express healthcare policy ideas in ways that are intuitively understandable to people. Um, and doing that and at the same time undergirding it with responsible policy is a challenge. It's a lot of fun if you enjoy that kind of thing, but it's also a big challenge. In 2009, President Obama appointed you to be the National Health Information Technology Coordinator. I think it was about a month after the passage of the high-tech legislation, the bills that offered, I think, $19 billion in incentives for physicians to buy uh, computer systems as long as they did it for meaningful use. You served in that role until 2011. Uh, what was it like to take on this awesome responsibility? And how would you view the evolution health IT across the United States since then? Well, if we had a few hours, it, I could pro probably make a dent in explaining that. But um, it was, of course, an honor to do that. It was also not a job I sought. 
Uh, I'm not a technologist. I'm not someone who's consumed with, uh, I didn't start building computers in a garage when I was a teenager. Um, I, d I don't program. I don't know any programming languages and I don't have any intuition for computers or software. Uh, what I had going for me was that I was a, a physician continuing to practice primary care, working in a tertiary care center, attending on the inpatient service, as well as seeing patients in the outpatient service. Of course, I had done my stints as moonlighting in an emergency room and so on. I'd worked in community health centers. So I had a pretty broad clinical experience, and I had also used an electronic health record uh, at Mass General Hospital where I worked. And I had done some research as a health services researcher on adoption of electronic health records. So I knew what some of the barriers were. So all those things gave me uh, some perspective. And the last thing I had, which again was I think different from many of the other people who have taken on this role was I was a student of government. I had taught for seven years at the Kennedy School. I'd written a book on how presidents manage healthcare policy. I understood intimately how the Department of Health and Human Services works and how it relates to the White House and the various groups that work in the White House. So I, I actually felt incredibly well prepared for this responsibility, much more so, I think, than I would have been if I had come without those set of experiences. I think the lack of technological knowledge was actually a benefit because I could identify with how bewildering it would be to ask hundreds of thousands of physicians and thousands of hospitals to drop everything and start using electronic health records, despite the availability of money to encourage it. I spent two years there developing the policies and the frameworks that uh, became part of high tech and that persisted for about 10 years until some of them were superseded by other payment legislation, particularly MACRA. And there was a very complex dance that we went through to make viable policy, a policy that would survive scrutiny in the Congress and the White House with the Department of Health and Human Services at OMB and with the professions and with the public, all important stakeholders. It's a long story, but it was a big challenge, but also enormously gratifying because I had a lot of independence, I had a lot of resources, and I gained enough trust so that uh, I was allowed to do what I thought was right most of the time. What I thought was right was not always what was perfect or ideal, but what was possible on the way to something that would get better over time. I've heard you speak about the power of data to improve quality. Certainly, we know that computers can provide patient convenience. Uh, theoretically, they should be able to lower costs. They should be private, secure, interoperable, all the various terms that are there. Where are we in the healthcare IT evolution, and I'll say in quotes, revolution? Yeah. Well, I know, Robbie, that you worked at Kaiser for most of your career, and I also know that Kaiser was an early adopter and a pioneer, um, and there's a lot to, there, there's, I think, a very important lesson from that, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Um, let me say 
that electronic health records are a technology. And we know over the history of the human race that technologies do not control the development of humans. Humans control how technologies are used. They put them to use for their purposes. And that is true. Nuclear energy can be used to destroy humanity or to generate green energy and to power nuclear submarines and to power interplanetary exploration. The technology uh, itself does not control the destiny of the sectors in which it operates. And I think that will be true of electronic health records. If we prioritized quality and cost control as the most important priorities for our healthcare system, electronic health records, A, would have been adopted without government incentives, and B, would be very different than they currently are. They would, be, they would have been developed with those goals in mind, rather than as they were with the goal of recapitulating the paper record and assuring in the process that revenues for organizations were maximized. You know, when, when George Halverson and I, he in the, as the head of the health plan and myself as the head of the medical group, made the decision to put in place a comprehensive system of IT, that we'd have information available at every point of contact. We were, as you say, functioning in Kaiser Permanente, which is a fully capitated prepaid type system. And so the kinds of considerations you're describing didn't exist. And yet it was so clear that if we're going to put in place approaches to raise quality and lower costs simultaneously, it couldn't be done without health IT systems. The question I have for you is, will we be able to utilize the IT systems to the maximum in a fee-for-service type world? Fee-for-service will always distort the use of electronic health records. The, the Realizing the full potential of electronic health records requires a change in the way we pay for care. And changing the way we pay for care requires the use of electronic health records. So they are intertwined, their fates are intertwined. Uh, I hate the chicken and egg cliche, but it applies here. Uh, you can't be a effective risk managing organization in taking care of patients without good information and prompt and, and valid information. And you can't have that information in a paper world. So uh, we need good information systems. And our studies here at the Commonwealth Fund of systems that effectively manage high cost patients, IT is a, uh, a critical foundational component for success. You need to have the environment of shared responsibility for costs in order to motivate not only adoption of IT, but its purposeful, its, its repurposing to the end of managing costs. Your book, Heart of Power, Health and Politics in the Oval Office, offers poignant insights into the interplay of elected officials' personal health issues and their legislative agendas. Can you tell the listeners what you learned from your research 
and a few of maybe the most memorable stories. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting to watch the interplay. Uh, in the book you mentioned, uh, I wrote it with a political scientist, and I came to it as a physician with a deep interest in government. But I had the intuition that that the personal health of presidents would influence how they regarded healthcare as an issue. And I found that to be true in some cases, very directly and very poignantly. I also found there were times when it wasn't true. One time when it wasn't true was with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who of course suffered from uh, polio, uh, was uh, partially paralyzed his entire life, though it was hidden from the American people, was actually an enormously innovative what would be now called physiatrist. Um, he developed uh, rehab programs that were totally novel for their day as he tried to make work with his own paretic and, um, and spastic limbs. Uh, and uh, he actually crashed at one time a uh, meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedics to try to get them to adopt some of his ideas. But he never was an aggressive advocate of universal health insurance, despite his own disability. Uh, and that's an enduring puzzle for me. He always got close and then backed away from advocating what Harry Truman later advocated. Another really interesting example of how uh, personal health experience influenced a president's decision-making was the case of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon's family was riddled with tuberculosis uh, he himself probably had the disease, uh, and though it was not clinically prominent, it was prominent on his own x-rays. But he had siblings who died of it. His mother took brothers to, from his home in Whittier, California, to Arizona for treatment of tuberculosis unsuccessfully. And uh, later on, when he was president, um, he was a very forceful advocate for universal health insurance, and when speaking about it, he often referred back to the healthcare experiences of his childhood and his mother's caring role for his brothers, the financial burdens that they had to deal with. One other person who um, was influenced very directly by the healthcare experiences uh, of their uh, family was John F. Kennedy. Kennedy became a Medicare advocate after his father had a stroke. Uh, Joseph Kennedy had a devastating stroke while Kennedy was president. Um, and when he began, Kennedy began his personal campaign for Medicare, and he worked very hard to get Medicare passed un unsuccessfully before he was assassinated. He also referred to his father's personal experience and the cost of caring for him and how fortunate they were to have the resources to do what was necessary to care for his crippled father. So there was, there is definitely a relationship. There is no such thing as protection against, against disease and illness, either personally or in families. And presidents are as vulnerable as anybody else. Uh, and uh, their personal experiences can make a difference. President Obama's mother's illness is often cited as a reason why he was so committed to the Affordable Care Act, even though he was advised not to do it by virtually all his advisors, including Vice President Biden. Uh, and 
It's not clear to me that from a strictly political standpoint, it was wise for him to advocate the Affordable Care Act and make it the priority he did. Uh, and, and I think it's a, a mystery that, that remains to be solved to understand exactly why he made that commitment. His mother's illness is an easy explanation. I don't know for a fact that that's the correct explanation. Fascinating. It helps explain why Richard Nixon was the force behind actually the HMO uh, Act passed in the late 1970s. And Kennedy certainly led the areas of disabilities and mental health benefits. So that definitely all ties back into uh, their families and their personal situations. Uh, David, uh, the government today, I think most people would call overly partisan, uh, different than the past, different than when you were working with congressional leaders. Uh, do you have ideas and hopefully some optimism for the future about how the current situation might get resolved? Well, I'm not an American historian, but I do know from the historical reading I've done that there have been other times in our history of intense partisan conflict, including in the early decades of our of our country when political parties first formed and when Jefferson and Hamilton were fierce contestants for political power. Then uh, Adams and Jefferson also were fierce contestants. And of course, in the time before the Civil War, partisanship was incredibly fierce and had the consequences that uh, it ultimately did. So uh, I don't think that this, this history, this period in history is unique but I do think it's at the extreme end of the sort of spectrum of partisanship, the distribution of partisanship that we see over the course of our history. I personally think it reflects deep demographic and sociological developments in our country, the, the, diverse, the increasingly diverse nature of our society, um, the prospect that Caucasians will be a minority in the United States, I think that's creating great social tensions, great political tensions. And uh, I think our challenge is to work our way through that and to maintain sufficient stability and civility so that when that eventuality occurs, as it will for sure demographically, I wish that our media saw it more as their role to be protectors of civil society rather than agitators. And I know that different ends of the political spectrum will take different viewpoints on who the major offenders are in that regard. But I think there's no question that we have a media environment right now, which is fundamentally different and may explain to some degree the level of partisanship uh, and the fierceness of the partisanship that we, we we are now experiencing. Very well said. You're currently the president of the Commonwealth Fund and engages in independent research on health and social policy issues. How do you see the Commonwealth Fund helping to move the nation's healthcare agenda in the best way for both the providers of care and patients? Well, we believe that facts still matter. Uh, we believe there is such a thing as valid information. Uh, and we believe that it is the responsibility of those who 
develop such information to communicate it effectively to decision makers. <clears throat> it's not enough to do the research or do the analysis, throw it out into the uh, stratosphere and hope for the best. So we try to produce the right information at the right time in the right way for the right people. Uh, and a lot of our effort is devoted to communication and to placing information in front of people at a time when they are ready to consume it and will find it actionable. The same paper, the same chart, the same table presented at one time will have absolutely no impact. Presented at another time can be decisive in the disposition of an issue. And part of what we try to do is figure out what that timing is uh, and how to get it into the, into the discussion. Earlier, you had talked about, you know, a regulated um, out-of-pocket maximum. Uh, and I, I think about, you know, I read an article, I believe it was last year, about how most Americans couldn't afford a $1,000 emergency. Uh, what, what should the out-of-pocket maximum be and why? You know, I can't, I haven't staffed this out, uh, but I think it should be set as a percent of income. Um, and so I think it should be less than 5% of income. Uh, and uh, that that's a reasonable burden for people to bear, uh, not zero, but uh, that is actually our definition at the Commonwealth Fund of underinsurance. If you're spending more than 5% of your income other than for premiums, if you're spending five, more than 5% of your income in the consumption of healthcare services. So that's sort of where I would put it um, offhand. I would put it at, I might put it a little bit higher for people who are more wealthy uh, so if your uh, income is three, four, five times poverty, maybe it's 10% of income. A few years ago, New York had that uh, proposed sugary soft drink ban. Um, and my question is, what do you think the government's role is in the regulation versus kind of freedom of preventative health? I mean, should the government be able to do things like regulate the size of sodas to do things to essentially force people to be healthier to help drive down costs? Well, though I understand and respect government, I'm not instinctively for regulation. I, I actually support the idea of markets where they work. One of the problems we have with our markets when it comes to public health is that information is not a level playing field. To, the information that promotes the use of foods and beverages and chemicals and activities that are dangerous from a health standpoint is huge. There are huge amounts of information available about, about that aggressive advertising. There's very little counterbalancing that advertising. So we don't have, because of the nature of our political culture, we don't support aggressive public education around food and uh, other habits. I would like to see much, much more advertising like anti-cigarette ads, much, much more advertising about the risks of sugar beverage, sugared beverages, about the risk of, of high sugar uh, foods in general, about the risk of obesity, uh, about the need to wear seat belts, uh, 
about the um, the risks of vaping, um, about the risks of medications that are so heavily advertised uh, on television. So I, I would like to see a balanced information environment before I jumped to aggressive regulation of foods. When it comes to, to, to that information, what about misinformation? What's the government's role in, uh, you know, when it comes to things like the anti-vaccine movement and its ability to, you know, go far and wide on Twitter and Facebook? I mean, does speech that dangerous go into the realm of, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater due to the fact that it can essentially cause people to get sickness and die and spread disease? The case of behaviors that directly jeopardize other people stand a, apart from other kinds of behaviors. Uh, I think they are appropriately regulated. Regulating people, re requiring that young people have vaccines, get vaccinated before they can go to school, before they can be in public places, I think is very appropriate. I'm less comfortable regulating speech. Um, I don't think that at, saying people shouldn't get vaccines is equivalent to to uh, calling fire in a uh, or shouting fire in a, in a crowded theater. The behavior should be regulated rather than the speech. With the lobbying power of uh, big pharma and other you know healthcare organizations whose best interest it is to keep you know healthcare as the status quo and as profitable to them as possible. Do you think elected and government officials really have voters and patients' best interests in mind? We need to do something about about finance about um, the financing of our elections. I think they it ha the the financing system has become toxic, and I think that can be traced back to the Supreme Court decision uh, about financing of campaigns, equating financing with with speech. So yes, I I think that there that we are in a period of time when money has too much influence in politics, uh, and it, that is where it sort of gains its influence. It's in the prospect of re-election. At the same time, we shouldn't forget that many candidates get elected even though they don't have the money that their opponents do. So uh, there are ways, especially in the social media world, to reach people without tons of money. But I'm not a, an expert on campaign finance. I just have, you know, general impressions. You know, when, when I was the CEO in, in KP, we went from being middle of the pack quality to being number one based upon the NCQA. And I truly believe that the overwhelming majority of the reason had to do with the availability of comprehensive data information through an electronic healthcare system at every point of contact. It's why blood pressure was controlled over 90% compared to 65% nationally, uh, colon screening over 90% compared to 65% nationally. And to me, availability of comprehensive data goes beyond even interoperability. Do you see a way that American healthcare can reach this point whether the patient carries the data themselves, whether it's available in some kind of repository that everyone, all systems can enter into and be interactive amongst them. Do you see comprehensive data on the horizon for the American healthcare system anytime in the future? And if so, how are we going to get there? 
I do. Uh, right now, my biggest hope is associated with the uh, availability of new technologies that enable patients to get access to their personal health information in electronic form. Uh, there's uh, recent legislation that passed that requires that all vendors make it possible for patients to get easy access to their data electronically and that penalize any provider for failing to enable that. Uh, and also there is in the law encouragement and in new reg proposed regulation encouragement of third parties. And when you think third parties, think Apple, Google, IBM, um, Amazon, third parties to step in and provide assistance to individual patients with gaining access to their data and storing it and stewarding, stewarding it. So there may be an opportunity from the grassroots up to create liquid data and pools of data. Now, I don't consider that anywhere near as effective as what Kaiser has done or what my home system of partners healthcare was doing when I left it. But unfortunately, these large integrated institutions are the exception, not the rule. And so I think that until providers have the motivation and resources to be uh, leaders and aggressive adopters of uh, intelligent, decision-supported software and electronic health records, I think we may have to turn to patients to take control. For patients who are, you know, middle to lower income, whose premiums are getting more expensive, deductibles are going up, out-of-pocket costs are rising, uh, and just, you know, more and more frustration towards, you know, Healthcare organizations, their their employers, and the government. Is there any hope for these people? Um, and if so, when can they expect to, you know, potentially see a turnaround or improvement in the American healthcare system? There's hope if they vote, and they have to vote for candidates who support what they want. <clears throat> and if they are unhappy enough with their current insurance and with their current healthcare system, they will vote for people who will change that. But unless they vote that way, I don't see much hope. So this is something where the electorate carries the responsibility, in my view. Um, we wouldn't have Medicare if it weren't for the massive landslide victory of Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Uh, we wouldn't have the Affordable Care Act if it weren't for the uh, massive uh, victory of uh, Barack Obama and his ability to carry both houses of the Congress. Uh, every time we have extended protection to Americans against the cost of illness, it has been because of an election. So I, uh, you know, I think Americans have to care enough about this issue. Um, it's, it's the old, we've seen the enemy and it's us kind of issue. This is a test of democracy. Of course, there are special interests, there are stakeholders, they will fiercely defend their interests, but they don't control elections. They influence them, but they don't control them. 
Well, David, your breadth of experience is remarkable. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot from it. Your balanced perspective brings in all points of view. I want to encourage listeners to go to the Commonwealth Fund website to be able to access the information. You'll find there quite a number of pieces written by David and by his colleagues, white papers available, the most comprehensive, objective information you're likely to find. And I want to encourage all the listeners to be active forces in trying to make the health care not only you receive, but all Americans receive being better. As we're fond of saying on fixing health care, let's make American health care once again the best in the world. David, thank you so much for participating today. My pleasure, Robbie. Thanks very much. Thank you again, David. Before we go, let's take a few minutes to hear some of the many suggestions from our listeners. The new Fixing Healthcare survey contains two questions. The first one asks listeners to rank the ideas they heard in season two. The second question asks how can the U.S. government best improve healthcare? We want to hear your thoughts on both of these survey questions. You can vote and add your ideas at robertperlmd.com. Many of our listeners pointed to the lack of price transparency when it comes to their medical care. Matt Long said that change will come through, quote, price transparency and hospital competition, just like all other private industries. Daniel Riney wrote that customers have the right to know what they will pay for a service prior to receiving that service. He says that healthcare is one of the only remaining industries where consumers are left in the dark until the services are already rendered. Robbie, you're a strong proponent of greater pricing and cost transparency in healthcare, especially when it comes to our nation's hospitals and drug companies. What do you think about our listeners' suggestions? Like Matt and Daniel, I believe that transparency is a first step. Hospital costs remain the most expensive part the bloated American healthcare system. In a Forbes article I wrote on the subject titled Three Ways to Stop Hospitals from Overcharging Patients, I recommended one, unmasking the charge master, two, capping out of network fees, and three, simplifying billing by forcing hospitals to bundle their fees. The combination of all three, if done well, would allow patients to know what it will cost to deliver a baby or have a total joint replaced in the future, offering greater competition between hospitals and hopefully lower prices for patients and their families. Once again, thanks to Matt Long, Daniel Riley, and everyone who has participated in the new Fixing Healthcare survey so far on robertperlmd.com. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, Please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at fixinghcpodcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.